0: Particularly to chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. Paul has argued that in eternity past, the one true and living God chose to save a remnant of people from the eternal judgment that their sins deserved. This intervention by God into the stream of human history is necessitated by the truth that all people are born dead in sins. This is his insistence. You see there in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. We are born in a state of deadness spiritually. We don't need to be taught to do wrong. But rather by nature we habitually break our creator's sovereign law. We may justify it, but God's word has said it is wrong for us to lie. And we do to lust and to envy and hate and act in self-centered ways break the law of God. When we are self-promoting and unloving, ultimately when we fail to love and honor God for who He truly is, we break His law. We show ourselves to be bent against Him by nature. But, in chapter 2, In verse 4, we read that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You've been rescued. You've been delivered from the consequences of your sin. Christ's mission to save His people individually from the Father's judgment also has history-altering and communal implications. It's not dealing just with the individual, but it has implications on a broader scale for all of us. Starting at verse 11, Paul lays stress on that point by looking back in time at an earlier stage of God's salvation plan. Notice there, Ephesians 2 and verse 11, as we continue. Therefore, based on this salvation work of God, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what, or by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Looking back, that's what we see. God's plan to save His people from their sins was devised in the mind of God from eternity past. But God slowly and progressively develops that plan through historical stages. He does not come in at day one and says, here's the whole deal. But progressively, through historical stages, He shows His salvation to be true. Anyone can claim to hear a word from God, and anyone can devise a means of salvation. It's like writing a novel. It takes some work. You've got to be consistent with what you've said, but you can do that. But what God has done is not to write some idea that can be put in with all the other novels. But what he has done is to slowly, progressively, through time, prove that this is his salvation plan. Now a major installment in God's escalating mission to save took place over 2,000 years prior to this writing, and it took place when God chose a family through whom to work out his purposes. Now don't misunderstand, from the earliest days of human history, God had identified a genealogical line through whom He would save His people. It started with Adam, the first man that God created, but it worked its way through Seth and Noah and Shem and God continuing to point us to this line of people that would produce Messiah, God's deliverer from sin. Messiah was one who would crush sin and death. And so through this line, there's an anticipation already of this one that would come. But God covenants with Abram to this end, and he gives him circumcision as a sign of that covenant. This ritualistic cutting of the male foreskin served as a tangible Definitive, non-reversible, unforgettable sign through the centuries that God had chosen the offspring of Abram to produce Messiah and provide salvation. It would take a long time for Messiah to come, but this covenant and this sign of the covenant was continually kept viable in the nation to remember this promise of God. So by electing Israel from all other nations for this vital role, God drew a tight circle around this unique people. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, "...for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession." It means that God made Israel his chosen holy people. He established his covenant of salvation with Israel. He gave Israel the covenantal sign of circumcision, and he chose Israel so that Messiah could be clearly identified upon his birth in the land God promised to Abraham. What does all that mean? What does it mean if you are not born into the family of Israel? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Of necessity, it means that you are not among God's people and you are alienated from God. And so writes the apostle here, verses 11 and 12, it means, as we get to the end of verse 12, that you have no hope and you are without God in this world. Now let me steer the direction of our thoughts at this point and how you respond to that idea that God chooses a people and if outside that people you have no access to God. How did the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, respond to that truth? They were quite fine with it. They didn't care at all. It was just fine with them to the destruction of their souls. And secondly, it was just fine with Israel to the impoverishment of their souls and even to the loss of some of them who did not understand the salvation of the Lord. So God elected Israel to carve out an island of salvation in a sea of spiritual blindness and rebellion, but in their sin, both Jews and Gentiles promoted what was the most divisive and hostile relationship in the history of the planet. In Paul's day, if a Jewish man took a Gentile to be his wife, his friends held a funeral for him. Kind of sends a message, doesn't it? The Jewish rabbis taught that if you found a Gentile woman having a child, a baby, in delivery, don't help her because you'd just be adding to the number of Gentiles who are only exist to fuel the fires of hell. And the Gentiles, on their part, responded to all of this in, with enthusiastic opposition, harmful resolve. Now, here's where we've got to insert an idea that's a, certainly uncomfortable, but real. On one level, does it not seem that God is part of this alienation? That by choosing Israel as his people, he chooses a path to create animosity and hostility and alienation? Well, we've got to know the mind of God. He doesn't think like we think, and he doesn't move as fast as we move. Generally speaking, he's working through the ages to prove his salvation plan. And in that salvation plan, to Abraham, when he called him out of Mesopotamia, he said, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. So let's not draw too quick of a conclusion on God, although he doesn't work as fast as we do. He doesn't need to. But he includes there in his covenant that all nations will be blessed through the election of this family. His ultimate purpose then was not to divide and alienate and exclude, but ultimately to unite the nations by the work of the Messiah that would be born to Israel. We can humanly think of this in places where, for, for instance, parents may choose a child for some blessing. Knowing that the other children in the family are going to see that in a really negative way and be very jealous about it, but the parents, knowing what they're doing, realize it's just going to be a matter of time until they get an opportunity to explain themselves and to explain that there is a unique plan and blessing for all of the kids in the family. Fill in the blanks, generic illustration. But you can understand how that might happen. Well, again, for God who is timeless and working through the ages with his people, he had to select a people through whom Messiah would be born, and it would create a hostility and an alienation that he would eventually work out, explain, and solve. But it took a long time. And so the picture now that we need to have is as we, as we work here with Paul in his writing to the Ephesians, is Paul writing to a church, the word means assembly of people, and it's comprised of Jewish and Gentile followers of Christ. As we come to understand what the church is, we start by looking back to an era when Jews and Gentiles were deeply divided. Divided. Indeed, because of God's electing purposes, specific goal of identifying Messiah, there had to be some alienation. And what is true of Gentiles on a corporate level is true of each one of us personally. At one time in the past, from birth, we were without hope and without God in the world. But something happened that radically reversed this reality for the followers of Christ, we note then secondly beginning at verse 13 that a church is a community of people who have been reconciled to God and his people through the death of Jesus. This is the wonder of it. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you who were once you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice the phrase at verse 13, but now. Looking back There was an age of alienation between Gentiles and Jews, but now something's changed. In Christ Jesus, that's shorthand, if you will, for what we find in the earlier parts of the book. You were dead in your sins. You followed the destructive course of this world. You were the object of God's wrath due to your sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, Paul writes to these believers, He has saved you. You are in Christ. You've been united to Him and joined with Him. So united to Jesus Christ by his grace and kindness with this result that you who were once far off, who's that? That's a reference to the Gentiles outside the chosen circle. You who once were far off and individually to us who are separated from God and his people have now been brought near. There's a figure of speech meaning the Ephesian church has been welcomed into relationship with God. Once on the outside of the building looking through the window, now they have been brought inside in relationship with God. There's perhaps imagery of Israel's temple with its concentric circles of ritual separation. But at any rate, we ask how does Jesus' death End this hostility. How is that possible? Verse 13, 4. Here's the answer. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace. Verse 14. He has made us one breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This division was broken down by the body of Christ, by the life of Jesus. He affects a reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles who place their saving trust in His death by dying to free His people from their sins. Jesus simultaneously removes the dividing wall that alienates. And He does that between peoples Because by his death, he ultimately does that between people and God. He breaks down the alienation that was the result of our sin. There is perhaps, again, this imagery toward Israel's temple. As he breaks down the dividing wall, there were walls of division at the temple complex, but he brings it down by his death. How does his death end this hostility? Verse 15, by, here's how it ends that hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that's the Mosaic law most particularly, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances refers to salvation history under the old covenant that God established with Israel. That was Israel's deal in one sense. If you were going to be part of God's salvation plan, you needed to join with Israel and to follow the dictates of the law. This written body of divine law was inadequate ultimately. Remember, it's just a stage in God's salvation plan. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but because people failed to keep that law. And so God abolished it in order that, and by abolished, he removed that as the process of orientation for his people, fulfilling it ultimately, but he did this that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. He did this to unite together those who were alienated, uniting the sinner to God and then Jews to Gentiles and vice versa. United in a single, and you notice here, verse 15, it's a new humanity through union with Christ. This union is effected when we place our full faith and trust in Jesus' death. That He died in our place, paying the penalty of our sin, and we place our faith in His resurrection power. That he has indeed defeated death. Said another way, God initiates this new era of salvation history to which everything in the past pointed, so that he, verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In one body is the church. And if you begin to grasp that idea, it's in this body that God is doing that work through the ages. There's something very unique that is taking place as a church gathers. National identities are obliterated by the work of Christ. We remain who we are, but we're united in one body. Our distinctions can be celebrated and recognized, but there's a higher authority. There's a higher connection. It is what Christ has done for his people, and that brings together a whole unique body in the church that Jesus died to rescue. He kills the hostility, referring to our hostility as sinners toward God. He ends the hostility by paying the cost of our reconciliation to God and thus to one another. He does to reconcile what we could never do. And Jesus came and preached, probably after his death in the mouth of his disciples is the idea, but he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. It might be his preaching during his ministry by way of promise and anticipation. But the church gathers then as a display of God's reconciling, peace-creating rescue of sinners. That's what's really happening as we gather together here. We gather to display to the watching world and the angelic realm that peace with God has been purchased by Christ. That people can gather to display that this work of peace has taken place in their own hearts and thus results in a reconciliation and a peace with one another. We gather here to say we are one new In verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What does it mean? Messiah's death provided access to God as we become, as a community of faith, this new temple, the church. That access is not earned by our obedience to the law, it is given as a gift by God in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so this place is a gathering of a new and living temple in which God, by His Spirit, lives. He's alive here in the hearts of His redeemed people. He takes up residence in our souls. He regenerates them. He bids us enter His presence as a holy priesthood, and we come together in the Spirit of God, alive in Christ. And our alienation ends. We might picture just on a simple level two grade school boys who are baseball players and they share the same idol and they share absolutely nothing else. They hate each other, they fight with each other, they compete with each other. They love baseball, but their love for baseball is never connected between the two of them into anything you would call love or respect. But a new boy moves to town and he happens to be the son of a professional baseball player. And he puts one hand on the shoulder of one of these young boys, his new friends, and he puts his, the other, another hand on the shoulder of the other boy, and he says, would you guys like to come to my home? Which they know to be a $15 million mansion, such as only baseball players can build. And he says, let's go, and, and I'll introduce you to my dad. On a human level right there, something just happened to the alienation between those two boys. <laughs> they're starting to get over it already. If it means we can go together with you into the home of your Father and meet Him, that in some small sense begins to grasp what Christ does to alienated people. He puts a hand on either party and He says, let me take you to my Father. Let's enter into His presence. And in that home, perhaps, these two boys, once alienated, become great friends because of the mediating work of the Son. But we know in the real world they may leave and hate each other. But in the church, that's not the case. And while there is sin that resides in the church, and while alienations continue and hostility continues because of sin, Jesus Christ has not suggested this to us. He has accomplished this in us. By uniting us to the Father, He unites us with His people wherever they are throughout the world, whatever nation they are part of. Young and old, rich and poor, men, women, and children united in the new humanity, Jesus Christ. We have not only a nation, we have a family identity now. And when this church meets, we meet as a local expression of the body of Christ, but we always have the sense that we meet in connection with and in union with other believers throughout the world. We prayed this morning for the work that was going on in Cambodia, and we prayed last week for the work that was going on in other parts of the world as we continue to unite with God's people in a way that uniquely binds us together. I've said so many times in journeys throughout this country, let me refer to Daniel since I've introduced you to him just a little bit here, but it's always interesting to me that within five minutes in talking to a man who's grown up in Myanmar and has never seen the United States or have any real categories for what life looks like here, I feel closer to him than unbelievers I've been with my whole life. There's a unique bond of the Spirit that is e- there that says, We are family. We are the community of Christ at this unique stage in history, and we are one in Him. This reconciling presence of the Spirit serves as tangible evidence that the new covenant era has dawned, a new stage of salvation history, not one disconnected from what's gone before, but one that is the fulfillment of all that has gone before, and one to which everything we do and think and how we work points back. It connects to this work of Christ. And so I would look at verses 19 through 22 as a summary of what has been said. A church is really the household of God, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household. The church is a family of God, and the Gentiles are part of that family. Paul continues by employing then the analogy of this literal house, verse 20, when he says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A little ancient building going on here. Is he saying that the foundation is the apostles and prophets, or that they have laid the foundation? Uh, Either way, it works, certainly. But also we have to ask, who are the prophets? Because of the order, the apostles and prophets... And also, if you look down to chapter 3 and verse 5, his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, the indication here is that these are New Testament prophets, that these are individuals along with the apostles who have spoken the word of Christ to his people. That foundation is the knowledge of of Jesus' death and what it means, and His resurrection and what it means. They have laid that foundation. You stand on that foundation. You have believed that truth. And Christ is the cornerstone. The big, huge block at the corner, down on the ground at the building, lays on the foundation, and all of the building comes back and rests in some unique way on that cornerstone. That's Christ. And you are this new building. Verse 21, In Christ, the whole structure... Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord through our connection to Christ. Through our union with Him, we are united together in a unique way so that verse 22, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in this new era of salvation in Christ, we form a new dwelling place. In the Old Testament temple, God lived within the Holy of Holies. He resided there. He objectified His presence there in the glory that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant. But we now are the new living temple of God. United to Christ, regenerated in spirit, we have become a living house In which God dwells in the person of the Holy Spirit. There is life in the gathering of the church. There's a spirit, God's spirit, that invades it and connects us on a very deep level with one another, and we unite together to celebrate that reality. Now, I will say and admit there's a lot to chew on there. I know that's thick. It's, it's not easy to digest, but it is my prayer that no one, nobody here will leave today saying my definition of church is that it's a building. Even if you don't buy anything that I'm saying, you have to know in our own self-understanding and identity, we see ourselves as much more than a building. And it's my prayer that no one will leave this place thinking that the local church is a social club or merely a provider of services, a place where people get married and buried. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of people who remember. They come always remembering That we were once individually and corporately separated from God and without spiritual hope. It is a household of faith created through trust in Jesus. We gather together to rejoice in, to identify in, and to learn more and more about what it means that Jesus died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin. What it means that He rose in victory over death crushing Satan's head, and what the eternal consequences will be. The church is a community of people who regularly gather to celebrate what Christ has accomplished in their lives, to grow in their new life in union with Him, to rejoice in baptism and the Lord's Supper and feeding upon the Word of God. It is a household of faith at the end of the day that roots its identity and communal story in the grand redemptive purposes of Almighty God. And nothing short of that will satisfy as a definition of what a local church really is. This grand redemptive story working itself out through the ages is our story. It's my story. It's a story about which I sing. It's a story about which we talk together as members. It is the story that we hear in God's Word. And our identity is there. It's self-defining. And the church exists then to proclaim and to display that grand story. To display God's infinitely wise plan to rescue a people for His name and to indwell them with His Spirit, uniting them to Christ. The church gathers to display the reconciling peace that God affects in the lives of sinners saved by grace from all nations, young and old, rich and poor, healthy and unhealthy, men, women, and children. The gathering of the local church is nothing less than a gathering of a temple in which God lives by His Spirit. If we grasp this reality, I don't know how it can be anything other than life-defining. Indeed, life-transforming. But I, we recognize, we understand, we've been there too. I may well speak to some of you here. It doesn't make any sense at all, and it certainly doesn't turn you on. You just hear these things, and you're just—it just is it just, just dead. There's nothing there. It doesn't, doesn't move you, doesn't inspire you, doesn't open your eyes to anything you haven't seen before, and you just say, What's the point? We all understand that because we've all been there. But I want to say respectfully and carefully that the reason is because you've not received the new life that is in Christ. There's a transformation of soul that comes where you come alive to his people and to his saving purposes. And that's not there yet for you. If you hear these things and you're dead to them, they're just academic, they don't mean anything, you don't identify with it, that's where you're at and it's good for you to recognize that that's where you're at. But I would also say by way of encouragement that your soul is shriveled because it stands on the narrow ledge of your own little puny story. Everything is residing on self. And it's going to get you nowhere. In fact, it's tearing you down, whether you recognize it or not. So there is here an invitation to come to stand on the bedrock foundations of God's grand redemptive story. He has been working out this story through the ages and he offers out hope to you and says come, respond. And as that offer is there, you have absolutely nothing to lose to embrace it. Or said another way, you have everything to lose. You'll lose yourself. You lose your identity. You may even, with many of our brothers and sisters throughout this world, gather with God's people knowing that it might be your last moment on earth. Because somebody may come in, storm your building, and kill you. There are believers meeting right now in that condition. But there is a church that gathers in this place week after week to display and to celebrate the truth that the new life found in union with Jesus Christ is real life. The soul is transformed. The Spirit of God washes us clean of our sin and our guilt before God. And though we continue as weak and sinful people, We are growing as His new living temple. And we gather then because we admit that we have no life worth living on our own. We covenant together to celebrate and live out the reality that we now have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That Christ is our life. That in some sense, self is gone. It's at least off the throne. And Christ rules within our heart and connects us then through the ages to God's eternal plan so that we form a family of God whose identity is rooted in the cosmic redemptive plan of the risen, reigning, and returning Lord Jesus Christ. There's a spirit in that kind of body. There is a life that is celebrated there, and there is an eternity of joy That is within our souls now and awaits us in eternity in fullness. We gather because that grand story is worth displaying and celebrating until Christ comes back. Let's bow for prayer. For those of us, Father, who know you because of the work of Christ and the cleansing work of the Spirit that has taken place in our lives, for those of us who can stand here and say in good conscience, my sins have been forgiven. They've been nailed to the cross of Christ who has paid the full penalty of those sins. For those of us who can say that, through no merit of our own, through nothing that we have done as such. We rejoice. We give thanks. And I pray that you would fuel within this congregation a delight in gathering as the church of Jesus Christ. For those who are separated from that message, I pray that the words of warning and The words of exhortation and admonition would be heeded as the words of a friend. As words of compassion and hope. And that there would be a joining with your people such that anyone in that condition right now will be able to look back and say, there was a day when I was alienated from Christ but I know now that I've been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus and united with His body and His plan for the ages. Self has been set aside and Christ now rules my heart. Anyone who does not have that life, I pray that you would bring it into their experience even this day and that you will hear in this place as you give us life, Permit this congregation to celebrate and display the saving wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and for a few moments consider in silence God's word for us today.